The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're listening in on our latest live journal club, which took place on November 18th. Here it is. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second live online EVRMA Global Journal Club. I'm Dr. Andres Ritz, and I'm going to be the moderator for today. The main reason to hold these journal clubs is, of course, to share interesting new research with our colleagues from all over the world, especially now in these times when it's a little harder to get together. And hopefully we can generate a good exchange of ideas. So let's get started. Today, our main topic is ovarian rejuvenation and emerging strategies to, to deal with it. This is, of course, a very current area. There are many new avenues being explored lately to manage to manage ovarian aging. To discuss some of the ones that seem to be gaining the most traction, we've invited six experts to discuss three papers. They're Dr. Sonia Reith, the research group leader at EV Foundation, Dr. Joshua Johnson, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Dr. Emre Selly, the chief scientific officer of EVRMA Global, and a professor at Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Antonio Pellicer, co-founder of EVRMA Global and current CEO, as well as professor at the University of Valencia. Dr. Nuno Costa Borges, scientific director at Embryo Tools. And Dr. Dagan Wells, director of Juno Genetics and also an associate professor at the University of Oxford. Um, thank you all for taking the time to join us today. We're going to present each paper first by one of our guests and then two other guests will discuss the papers after that, we will also be taking some questions from the audience. Our first paper for today is going to be presented by Dr. Sonia Reith. It is titled, Autologous Stem Cell Ovarian Transplantation to Increase Reproductive Potential in Patients Who Are Poor Responders. It was published in 2018 in Fertility and Sterility. Dr. Reith, whenever you're ready. Well, thank you very much for letting me join you in this discussion about the exciting issue of the ovarian rejuvenation. <clears throat> As all of you know, uh, we are having, are having an increasing population of women affected by ovarian aging, poor ovarian response, diminished ovarian reserve, and even premature ovarian failure. And to date, most of, especially for poor responders, most of the strategies for the clinical management are based on ovarian stimulation protocols. But no matter what uh, protocol are you using, if there's no antral follicles to be stimulated. So we felt that uh, we should refocus all that research. It's uh, important to highlight that even when the ovaries uh, lose the ability to ovulate, remains a residual pool of uh, primordial follicles that can be rescued to growth when, when we, we gave them the, the appropriate uh, ovarian environment. 
in fact, this concept of ovarian follicular rescue raised in 2013 with the publication of uh, Kawamura's group where they uh, published live births from POI patients after uh, applying the in vitro activation protocol of this, um, for these residual follicles. So we felt that maybe this was the same underlying mechanism of the several reports described of live births and spontaneous fertility recovery in infertile patients due to chemo and radiotherapy after the bone marrow transplant. So we decided to uh, use this same approach to try to optimize the ovarian reserve of uh, poor responder patients in this case. So, uh, well, we, we made first, uh, but it's out of the discussion in this, uh, in this occasion, uh, experimental setup working with both mouse and human ovarian samples to try to see if the bone marrow direct stem cells were able to promote the uh, ovarian niche regeneration and, the promote, uh, and also to promote follicular development. So uh, after obtaining a positive result, we designed what we call the ASCOT technique, which is the autologous stem cell ovarian transplant. And for that paper, we start a pilot study in 20 poor responder women, according to ESRA criteria, that underwent this technique. The technique uh, consists in the use of uh, stem cell mobilization protocols from the hematology uh, field. So we mobilize the stem cells from the bone marrow to peripheral blood by a five-day treatment with uh, GCSF. And then we collect the stem cells from peripheral blood by apheresis. After that, we uh, inject by uh, intraovarian catheteries one ovarian artery with these stem cells. So the other ovary remains as a own control for its patient. We made the, <coughs> the intervention in the 20 poor responders and we made a follow-up during six, mo six months for the main ovarian reserve biomarkers, so AMH and andral follicular count. When we examined the first results, we realized that there is a huge variability within the poor responder population because, because it contains several and very different patients. But in general, we observed that AMH increased uh, in the first four weeks after the stem cell treatment. And we also identified a second increasing wave in AMH like two to three uh, months after the, the treatment. With regards to the antral follicular count, we observed that most of the patients have a positive response, meaning like increasing antral follicular counts when referred to the basal levels prior to, to the ASCO technique, being especially significant two weeks after the, the treatment. So this means that we are rescuing some secondary or uh, late preantral follicles that otherwise would, uh, would undergo attrition. So we provide a good ovarian niche that allow them to grow and to maturate. As I told you, uh, we observe a huge variability within patients. So what we made was to establish the ASCOT success criteria, which were an increase in two determinations uh, in AMH, consecutive determinations, or an increase in at least three antral follicles when compared to the uh, follicular counts prior to the ASCOT application. So having this criteria in mind, we realized that 81% of our patients have a positive response. 
And this response was correlated with the presence in blood, I mean in apheresis in, in this case, with uh, two stem cell secreted factors, the fibroblast growth factor two and the thrombospondin um, one, which is a key regulator for, for uh, new angiogenesis. And we all know that uh, vascularization is crucial for the follicular growth. So after these follow-up periods and even during, uh, when we observe a positive response of the ovary, we initiate uh, stimulation, uh, ovarian stimulation protocols with, with these patients. For that part, uh, in order to only have the only difference from the ASCOT, we use the same stimulation protocols than we, they did uh, in the past, even if in sometimes they were not like the good ones for them. And we, when, when obtaining embryos, we made PGTA just to try to see if there's also any effect on the oocyte quality. So when we compare the cycles that these very bad prognosis patients made in the past and after the ASCOT, we realized that for the same amount of cycles, more or less, the number of antral follicles, as well as the AMH levels, the number of puncture follicles, and the metaphase to recover were increased. In fact, when we compared the cycles, we realized that the number of metaphase two and embryos were almost double. They do not uh, achieve any single pregnancy in previous cycles. And after the ASCOT, we observed that uh, we've got like, uh, it was five pregnancies in this publication, but the study just continued after. And three of them were spontaneous, which is a, a very good news in that, <clears throat> in that study. Should be highlighted that two of our patients have two pregnancies each. And in total, we've got like three live births for these women. But when, uh, well, we don't have data from previous cycles. I mean, from the PGTA data, because they do not do that in previous cycles. But we realized that our aneuploidy rate was pretty high. But this is due because most of our patients were, were women within, uh, between 38 and 40 years old. So our aneuploidy rate is the same one that uh, they have due to age. So since that the stem cells are in optimizing the ovarian reserve by increasing the number of metaphase two and embryos, but the quality is determined by, by the patient age, which is you know, one of the main uh, determinants for oocyte quality. So these were like the main results that we achieved in this, in this paper. And it seems that uh, in total, the overall ASCOT pregnancy rate was 33%, which is pretty high compared with the 0% that they get in the previous cycles. And this is like the main findings that, that we find. And it seems that this can be a, a good option for women with no other option than the egg donation, which most of them reject because they want to have their own child. So we should keep work on that to try to rescue these residual follicles. Thank you so much, Dr. Reith. Dr. Johnson and Dr. Sally, please give us your thoughts on, on this paper. Whomever wants to go first, feel free to you know, comment on each other. Dr. Reith, feel free to jump in as well if there's anything you want to answer to. Um, go ahead. I think Dr. Johnson should be first. <laughs> Thank you, Emre. So, of course, I was excited when I became aware of this paper closer to its publication. And the results are very impressive. And 
Sonia started off by giving the key feature of these women, and that is while their primordial follicles still in these ovaries, they're not, they're not growth activated, they're not accessible uh, within that woman's cycling or, or residual cycling. And so the technique ASCOT here is awakening those follicles, making them accessible. And I love the inclusion of data on thrombospondin FGF2 that suggests that this could be due to the stimulation of early vasculature around those follicles. Um, I'll you know, move to Emre now who can comment on you know, really how impressive it is that you know, to go from zero pregnancies to some pregnancies and think about it a little more clinically. Thank you, Josh. Well, I, I would like to comment about the study itself and, and obviously the findings are super exciting, but I, what, it was, what I was most excited about when I saw this and the prior mouse data from Sonia Harris and Antonio Pelissar's lab um, is that it was very scientifically done. Like they started in the mouse model they generate a lot of data, hormonal data, follicular development data, death data, atresia data, uh, cellular death markers. Many, many, some people may say uh, uh, that, and some people on this uh, call may say that the only good model of ovarian aging is, is human. Uh, but I think if you are going to uh, pursue a new treatment model, it does make sense to uh, set up your systems uh, to ask questions in models, especially if let's say you find that the intervention of some product, some autologous product actually it works, then you may wanna find what is uh, within that product that is actually working. What is the specific uh, molecule? And that would require an animal model or, or some kind of a model. So I really, <laughs> I know you, you are, I'm speaking to the, uh, converted. So basically, uh, <laughs> I'm preaching to the court. So I agree with that perspective first. Secondly, I I would like, so that's a congratulations to Sonia. And secondly, secondly, and everybody knows how highly I think of her, but secondly, uh, a, I think it matters uh, to understand for people who listen that this organization or Sonia Herais or Tom Pelissar or myself or anybody, we're not trying to say, hey, we find this uh, miraculous cure that will help everybody, right? So these, these are attempts uh, in, its, in themselves, they have failures, right? But of those failures, we learn. So Sonia, of course, this is, a, this is a, going to be a podcast. We're not showing any, any PowerPoints, et cetera. But it, there were details in, in her attempts, for example, injecting one ovary and keeping the other one as a control, right? That, that, that I think is, is a very interesting thing about how, how the effect might be and how we can move forward in our next clinical studies. Uh, does it matter? Does it not matter? Do we actually have to go to the ovaries or not? Uh, and then when, she, so why don't you comment on that? What, what do you think you learned from that? Well, uh, first of all, I, you know, I'm a basic science, so I totally agree with the use of animal models. They, they help us a lot. Even if it's uh, different from the human ones, it's like a first step because, you know, the, the human beings and the human tissue for research is very limited. So we first need to test everything on the mouse models. And once we found something, we should move to the human tissue. 
In fact, uh, this was our strategy because in this uh, other paper that came before the, the human study, we first include the use of POI and poor response animal models, but we also use human ovarian tissue from poor responder women, which was xenografted into a, an immunodeficient mouse. So we made a, a kind of mixed uh, model using human tissue for trying to see if um, the positive effects that we observe in the mouse ovaries were also found in the human ones, because they are very different, not only from the structure point of view. So prior to move to the women, we made this mixed uh, model, which was very useful because help us to validate our findings in the mouse ovary. And uh, about your second question of using or injecting only one ovary, in fact, we realized that when we compared both ovary, the non-infused one was also having some positive effects. And this is due to the, what is called the paracrine, paracrine signaling of stem cells, which uh, means that one of the main uh, mechanisms for the adult stem cells, which are like the bone marrow derived stem cell ones, the ones that we are using, is the, that rather than differentiating into oocytes or wherever, which is completely excluded in our study, what we saw is that they secrete a big uh, broad of uh, growth factors and, and positive uh, soluble factors that help the, the cells of the ovary to grow properly, to proliferate, and to avoid the, uh, the atresia, which was one of the main findings. And in fact, this, help, uh, this opens a, a new way to try to find uh, less invasive uh, strategies. So if this works and we can avoid the ovarian injection, this would be even nicer. And so can I jump in there and follow up, Sonia, please? So... Of yeah. course, your, your main finding comparing or showing that there wasn't a difference in the CD133 highly positive fractions, but you found those great correlations with FGF2, I think, and thrombosbondin. Yeah. Have you looked longer term to see if the cells you're transplanting themselves and which cells in your mobilized stem cell fractions are producing thrombosbondin, are producing these factors? Right, and, and so th this, it, of course, it requires the cells to stably engraft likely in the ovary to give you your effect. So are you looking long-term at what the differences are in the cells that are after actually engrafting? Yeah, well, in fact, in the animal model, um, we test two types of stem cells. We, we use the whole bone stem cell population, which includes... Uh, both the hematopoietic and the mesenchymal stem cells. And we also test only the CD133 positive cells, which were the ones used in previous works, working in similar therapies, but for patients affected by the Asherman syndrome. And we realized that the highest effects were observed when we use the whole population, because this includes a broad uh, type of uh, stem cells for progenitor cells, which are improving the... Well, the main effects that we observe is increasing ovarian vascularization, increasing uh, proliferation, especially from the granulosa cells, and reducing apoptosis. So now uh, we, we, um, we are also working only on that uh, type of project by using only the stem cell mobilization, because in our animal models, we administer the cells through the tail vein. And we observe that the cells by themselves 
were able to reach the human ovarian graft. And in fact, there's um, a capacity of the ovary, which is called homing, to attract the, the cells, the stem cells derived from the bone marrow. You know, at the end, uh, every time that the patient ovulates or there's something wrong on the ovary, they are um, secreting a, a, a signaling uh, molecules like chemokines and chemoattractants that help the stem cells to go that, uh, to that damaged tissue and to repair. This is uh, basic biology for tissue repairing in the body. And it occurs. It occurs less on the ovary than we expect to, to happen. It, I mean, in a normal situation, but it's a, a capacity of our body. So we are trying to take advantage of these properties to try to, you know, to increase the response that we are observing on that. And for sure, we should uh, keep working on trying to identificate which are the specific growth factors or which type of cell, if there's only a single or, or, or the good thing is to use a combination of stem cells to try to increase as much as we as possible the tissue regeneration and the, to promote the follicular growth. Uh, Andres, I want to ask one more question to, to Sonia. I think you learned one, you, I mean, uh, one more comment. Uh, I think we, we all learned also from your studies uh, the impact of age, which means when you're old, you're old. Is that, is that, is that one of the conclusions of, 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 of your study? I mean, uh, you, even if you, we push, we push and we, we get an egg from a 45-year-old woman, then it, it is likely to be aneuploid, which is not surprising, but isn't that, is, is that what you saw? Yeah, in fact, uh, it has been established elsewhere on the literature that age is the main determinant for oocyte and embryo quality. So our approach is, you know, this is not going to be, or it's not supposed to be a therapy for everyone else. It's only for those patients with no other option. So what we are trying to do is, even if the age is the main determinant for quality, and for example, if you've got uh, 1% of probability to have an, uh, an euploid embryo, if we can produce 10, uh, 10x instead of just one, the probability to have a, a good embryo uh, would be higher. And is there time for one very short comment still? Sure thing. Thank you. So the, the last question I had for you was, it, perhaps in the broader bone marrow stimulation literature or you know, transplantation literature, there'd be clues. Why do you think some women produce uh, bone marrow-derived stem cells with different levels of uh, these soluble factors, right? Why, given GCSF to two women, why do the soluble fractions differ between them? And do you think you could go that direction, tailoring the mobilization so that you get more of the desirable soluble factors that would indicate better outcomes later? Uh, well, it makes sense. You know, your, your point is totally right. But for this study, what we did was to use a completely established protocol for stem cell mobilization, which is the one that is used worldwide for healthy donors of, uh, you know, of stem cells for the oncologic uh, patients and wherever. So this can be a, a next step, but we need to go step by step, by step, by step because we need to be uh, completely sure that every, even if it's a pharmacological treatment, we, we should um, 
examine in detail if there's any other non-desired side effect of that. So that's a, a very good point of view. And, and maybe we can just work with these mobilization protocols to try to modulate the response from the paracrine signaling point of view to try to promote those cells which are producing these factors with that, with uh, you know with positive effects at the end on the ovary because they the stem cells produce huge amount and types of these factors so we first need to identify which ones are the positive ones for the ovary and without having any non desired uh, side effect of the mobilization process Dr. Herrera, there are a couple questions from the audience. The first one I'm going to ask you to answer. They ask, um, did you get the stem cells from autologous blood, which you touched upon? And then I wanted to add a little bit to that question as well. And in your experience, how does that compare to other potential sources of stem cells that are not bone marrow? Well, uh, in fact, there's a lot of... Uh, papers working with other stem cell types, like the one obtained from the adipose tissue. Uh, there's even stem cells from the menses. But, you know, if we are thinking about POI patients, they do not have menses. So we need to, to refine this, this uh, type of use. The main advantage that we found in, in using these bone stem cells, the whole population was the collection procedure. Because for having the mesenchymal ones, at the end you make to uh, you need to make a very invasive uh, procedure, which is the puncture or the injection of the iliac crest, which is very painful and can have some uh, you know, complications for that. So these ones seems a good candidate, precisely because we are using the whole populations, which includes uh, different type of stem cells. So not only the mesenchymals or not only the, the hematopoietical ones, because at the end, we realized that both are uh, required for, for having a, a, a good response of the ovary. This is not only a thing of proliferation or only from, um, for vessel formation. We need both. So that's one of the main advantages of trying to use a combination of several uh, stem cell types. And... You know, we were very lucky that in the bone marrow, we've got the different types of uh, stem cells, but for sure there's many other options that should be investigated. And I think that the most promising results came from the, from the stem cells obtained from the adipose tissue, apart from the bone marrow, I say. Thank you. Th there is one more question from the audience that we have time for before we're moving on to the next paper. Um, Somebody's asking, they're curious about the space-time relation with the treatment and then the long-term positive outcome. And you, you touched upon this a little bit before. This is not just for you, Dr. Wright, but for all of you, um, about potential mechanisms to induce a long-lasting stimulation, considering that this is just a one-time single injection. Well, uh, from our data, we can observe that when the ovary reactivates, it reactivates. I mean, this is not like a one-point effect. In fact, we, we've got uh, like two patients having two pregnancies each, and we observed when we were analyzing the antral follicular count and the um, AMH, we observed uh, several waves uh, of positive response. So for sure, the first one is due to the 
rescue of uh, late preandral follicles. I mean, the, the response that we observe in the first four weeks after the stem cell treatment, but we also observe more waves after like two to four, uh, two to four months after the, the treatment. So this means that the primordial follicles are also awakening from the, from the ovary. So once we reestablish the, the ovarian niche, seems that the effect is, maybe it's not permanent, but seems to be like long-term effect, which allow not only the late preandrals, but I saw the primordials to be activated and grow until the, the mature stage. Thank you. We, that's all we have time for for now for this paper. We'll move on to the next one. For the next paper, it'll be presented by Dr. Selly. It is titled Effects of Introvarian Injection of Autologous Platelet-Rich Plasma on Ovarian Reserve and IVF Outcome Parameters in Women with Primary Ovarian Insufficiency. It was, it was sorry, published in uh, Aging in 2020. Um, Dr. Selly, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Andres. Uh, well, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, discuss this data here today with you. Uh, before I start, I, I need to make a few comments. Uh, the, <clears throat> this paper was made possible and the, most of the work was done in Istanbul by two people. Uh, one is Yit Chakrolu and the other one is Bülent Trash. Both of them are faculty at the um, Ajibadem Center in Istanbul, which is one of the busiest uh, IVF centers in Turkey and probably in, the, in Europe. Uh, a, this work was also, my involvement with this work also is based on my interest in the basic science of ovarian aging, which was then after I started working with EVRMA and what I saw um, Sonia and Tony Pelissar are doing, uh, I became more and more interested in clinical application, which was not necessarily a priority for me before. Uh, and, and, and a search of data that is convincing enough to design a randomized clinical trial around. So that is, uh, that is the idea behind this paper. Uh, I think uh, Sonia Herais's uh, presentation it was a very good introduction to why we did this. Uh, obviously, the two studies that preceded, I mean, two paths of studies that preceded this uh, clinically were uh, Kawamura's work on uh, hippopathway activation and, and Herais and Pelissar's work on um, bone marrow dry stem cell utilization. Uh, I was going to emphasize it, but I, before I did that, actually Josh mentioned it, uh, this is basically a, a people trying to awaken the few remaining follicles in an ovary. And it seems that there are many ways to do it. Uh, people like us are trying to find out which one is the easiest, least uh, troublesome for the patient, uh, least complicated and most effective. And then the, and the aim is to decide who it is effective for. Are there people who should never even try it? Are there people who, who are very likely to benefit from it? And what will be the predictor of it? So that will be like the uh, final aim of all these studies a few years from now. But uh, this is definitely, um, we are encouraged. I was encouraged to participate in this work because of the work of Kawamura and Herais Pelissan. So um, I will not, of course, go into, into Sonia's work. Uh, just to clarify, Platelet-rich plasma is obtained from uh, autologous blood, which means if I'm getting injected, it, I use my own blood, uh, which uh, removes all the issues regarding transportation of um, 
tissue between individuals, which is a concern, at least in the United States and many parts of the world, I assume. And um, you basically spin the uh, platelet-rich plasma, and then you uh, you get the um, uh, upper layer that is clearer, which has a lot of platelets and platelet-derived factors. And then at the bottom, you have the red part, which is like red blood cells. And in the middle, there's this whitish area, which is important um, uh, because it has certain white blood cells. And some people, at least in uh, in United States and Europe, we, we have to use um, FDA-approved uh, machines and, and preparations. And those generally make us unable to touch anything else other than the clear region. Um, so before reproductive endocrinologists started being interested in PRP, people used it for um, actually um, aesthetic reasons and, and for orthopedic rejuvenation in injuries uh, with some, uh, some papers suggesting that it works and some others suggesting that it doesn't work. What is clear that, and absolutely not surprising is that blood has chemicals in it that can activate other cells to work. Uh, and, and I don't think, you know, I guess the, the premise of the approach is, is convincing. In this study, uh, in this specific study, uh, primary ovarian insufficiency or premature ovarian failure patients were utilized. The definition was based on ESHRA criteria, which may not be the same as some of our uh, listeners in the United States use. So patients had to have oligo or amenorrhea for at least four months. They would have to have an FSH over 25 on two different occasions, and they would have to be younger than 40. Uh, and I kind of like the younger than 40 aspect of the study because um, uh, because of what the question I asked Sonia, I mean, we realized that over 40, even if we do get eggs, we end up with a lot of aneuploidies. And malignancy were excluded uh, and ovarian insufficiency of genetic etiology was excluded. And I would like to, uh, since I returned to the United States and, and I, I, I see patients, I'm being referred uh, a number of patients from uh, different uh, ethnic groups that are that tend to have uh, genetic um, issues causing infertility, and and I would like to say here for everyone that th this may not necessarily be as useful in them if there is an underlying unknown genetic cause for the failure of the ovaries that leads to the death of eggs. We will probably hear more from Nuno about this, but you know I I I think that's. That's an even separate issue, the genetically caused egg death as it leads to premature and insufficiency. PRP was prepared the day of the procedure. Uh, generally 20 milliliters, uh, 20 cc blood was taking. Uh, each 10 gives to four ml or so of um, platelet-rich plasma. You spin them and then you uh, collect it. And each ovary was injected two to four cc of, of blood, of PRP, I'm sorry. So this is autologous PRP injecting the individual ovaries. Uh, again, this was done uh, at, in Istanbul. Uh, I have observed personally, uh, Dr. Chakarolu performing is extremely talented, hardworking and efficient. And I'm sure he would be happy to share his, his expertise with people if you reach out to him. You can find his email through the paper also. Um, so basically the follow-up, of course, this is a, this is the first try kind of thing. It's a big study, a lot of people involved, but a lot of patients, 311 included in the study, but 
it's still a first. And as such, you know, once people underwent PRP injection, they waited. Uh, and sorry, the PRP injection, if the patient's amenorrheic was done randomly, if she was oligomenorrheic, so she was having periods, it was done within uh, the first 10 days of the uh, cycle, but after she stopped uh, her period. And then after that, patients waited for six weeks to see if there will be a, a spontaneous uh, period. And, and if they did not have a period, then they were induced to have estrogen progesterone to induce a cycle. And then after that, they were assessed to see whether they whether or not they have antral follicles. Uh, if hey, Andrew, yeah, very quickly as you go through the methodology, can you comment? That's the Yale. It does it. That's the Yale way, huh? Cut it off. All right, man. Go ahead. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, go. Ahead. I'm sorry. I just want it clarified. The injections were done into at least one ovary. And so were there women that wasn't, it wasn't part of the study to limit injection into one ovary. Could you briefly comment on that? So um, this is actually, I know it sounds not scientific when you write a paper, but in reality, all, all people who take care of these women will know that sometimes you go in there, but, and you may not be sure if there is an ovary or can you see the ovary clearly because they're so small. Uh, some women with ovarian failure may not have uh, really visible or, ac or accessible, but access these days uh, for, you know, talented people who perform the, I mean, it can be, a, access can also be a problem, but more often in women with POI is, is the, our ability to safely recognize the ovaries. And, um, and my suggestion to anyone who's doing it is before committing to it, it's always good to see the patient do the ultrasound and make sure you can actually recognize the ovaries. So they would, uh, be observed after the first period, and, and we will check whether there's an antral follicle. If there's no antral follicle, then uh, there will be no treatment, and they will have another cycle, again induced with estrogen and progesterone, and they'll be assessed again, and then again and again. Most of the people who would respond will respond within the first three months. I think some followed four months, some other a little more, um, uh, but uh, this was the follow-up stages, and then. Um, this uh, obviously was not a randomized clinical trial. And uh, this was just a, you could call it a prospective cohort or case series, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, um, 311 patients were included in this study. Of those, 8% or so, 23 conceived spontaneously. Now, uh, <laughs> it, some IVF practitioner may think it may not be good for business, I guess. But uh, uh, from a scientific perspective, I find it's very interesting. And and uh, and the more I look at it, the more I see that this could in itself be a trial, like do this and then follow spontaneous versus a treatment. Does it even matter? Uh, in any case, of those who did not get pregnant spontaneously, they were followed, and and one one third or so of the people who were followed did not develop antral follicles. So they did not get any treatment afterwards. Of the remaining people, which was around 200 people, um, two thirds of the 200 got into a retrieval. So they had antral follicles, they were stimulated and eggs are collected from it. And of the, as this is 130 people, and of those 82 people either transfer or stored embryos. Now, of course, transfer and store embryos is is not necessarily the greatest, you know, data, final data we would like in a study. We, will, we would wanna know um, the same parameter, but 
this was more about sim things that were done based on patients' requests uh, under an experimental protocol. So some were uh, called some were storing embryos, and others were uh, actually doing day five day five culture, PGTA, and either store uh, euploid embryo or transfer euploid embryo. And and some of these patients, um, uh, like twenty five patients stored embryos, and another almost 60 underwent transfers with 13 achieving pregnancy. Overall, of the 300 people, 311 people who went, who went in uh, to be treated, uh, 36 was pregnant and 25 actually had a, a baby or sustained implantation. So it's around 8% or so. Uh, and some, this doesn't include the people who did not undergo transfer, just stored their embryos. So I, we could assume probably that around 10% or so definitely benefited from it. Now, one of the interesting uh, data parts of this was first, uh, yes, there was a slight improvement in the post-treatment enteral follicle count and post-treatment AMH, but it was not very significant. And, uh, and, and the um, FSH did not even change much, which, which tells you, again, goes back to what Josh had said that you know, it's, you're activating the few things that remain there. You're not really generating tens and thousands of eggs uh, from scratch uh, in this with this treatment. Uh, again, working with, uh, with the people that I do, uh, such as Richard Scott and, uh, and others who are very interested in clinically uh, relevant data generation, uh, we did ask whether any of the pre-treatment parameters were relevant uh, did some people do really worse compared to others? And yes, if you had zero enterofollicle before PRP, you did worse, not surprisingly, compared to people who have one or two. And, and in the AMH, if you were in the lowest 25th percentile, you did um, uh, worse compared to the rest. And if the FSH, if you are in the you know, worst uh, percentiles, uh, about 75th, uh, you did worse. Uh, we, this is also probably not surprising. It, it makes us to conclude what we conclude, uh, what we discussed previously. Uh, and, um, and overall, my understanding as a, as a discussion part is that this study builds on the work of others. Uh, others meaning other people who use different methods to activate follicles and others people who did much smaller patient size in Greece, et cetera, with with a PRP, and it is in the same path. Uh, it seems to be similarly effective. I think the differences in the success of different procedures are uh, probably more determined by patient selection than the procedure itself. That would be my guess. Uh, and I think uh, what we learn from this, I, what I learned is that uh, this an RCT is needed. Just to clarify, uh, as I'm a member of EVRMA Global, uh, that these are things that we do as a under research protocol at EVRMA. We are we have undergoing randomized clinical trials in these subjects. Both uh, Dr. Pelicer has one in Spain, uh, and then there's another one in New Jersey. And these uh, these are done under research protocol, not as a you know fee for service clinical service, uh, uh, etc. But I think uh, the data that I see from this study would justify doing a randomized clinical trial. Uh, we also learned from uh, Sonia's work and we, we limited to a certain age. Actually, we, we put a 38, age limit of 38 in our US study that is ongoing. 
uh, and uh, and although I promised <laughs> I promised not to uh, work on uh, uh, talk about uh, unpublished data, especially to Josh, but the only thing I want to say is that we do see spontaneous pregnancies as reported in this trial. So um, again, it, it is an interesting field. It's at the beginning of it, uh, but uh, this is a work that will lead to additional questions. I'm happy to answer any comments or questions. Thank you, Dr. Slay. I was planning on saying that we're going to start the discussion now, but of course, Dr. Johnson started it a few minutes ago. Um, in any case, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Payther, feel free to jump in and, and comment on it. Well, I noticed that there's a question in the chat regarding an animal model for this particular approach. And so that's a good entree for Emre to answer that. And then in an animal model, what you'd like to see is a sham control. And I don't think that's maybe justifiable in human patients but simply the act of injecting the ovary and whether there's any data out there that you know of Emory that just uh, mechanically injecting the ovary might have any effects to really understand what PRP itself does. So, uh, so basically we, we, the way we function with an EVRMA is that we try to use different strengths of our group. And in our group, although I, although I personally did a lot of animal work, I think the, the, the best uh, animal work for ovarian rejuvenation came from, um, from Valencia. And actually, I think Sonia should answer this question if it's okay with you, Sonia, what, you, what you're doing with PRP in vitro in the animal now. Uh, well, uh, thank you <laughs> very much. Uh, we are just now, well, in fact, this uh, a collaboration with Dr. Sally uh, and also the work that we are developing in Valencia we are trying to prove and to identify uh, <clears throat> which factors, even on the PRP, uh, are inducing these positive effects that they have already seen on the women. And we are also doing this kind of sham surgery because, you know, derived from the Kawamura's paper, we realized that by doing mechanical fragmentation or damage on the ovary, this would activate the follicles also. So we are having this in mind to be sure that it's not only the, I mean, the intervention of injecting the ovary and to disrupting the, the, the tissue, which makes the, the ovary to start function. And for now, there's no published data yet, but we are working hard on that. And we are seeing very nice uh, response from the ovaries receiving the PRP when compared to those receiving saline or just the sham injection. So hopefully in the future we, we will publish all this data. But, you know, I think that all these interventions, no matter if you are working with PRP, with the stem cells, or are very reassuring because all of them show us that the paracrine signaling and the stem cell or the platelet um, secreted factors are very important. So what we need is to provide the ovarian cells and the follicles with these growth factors, no matter what, uh, where they came from, if it's from a stem cell or from, from a platelet, uh, that help them to grow. So hopefully in the future we, we can discuss uh, this, this data. Thank, once thank we you. Yeah, thank welcome. you, Sonia. No, I wanted you to answer because you're doing, you're doing the work. Dr. Pelissar, would you like to comment? Here we go. 
<laughs> I'm too old uh, to deal with this new technology. But, but you have a great sweatshirt. <laughs> yes, thank you. Listen, um, I would like, uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate um, Andres and, and Emre for this initiative. I think it's great. We have many participants. Um, I would like to make some uh, general comments and then perhaps go uh, down to the uh, to the paper that uh, M represented. So the first thing that I would like uh, uh, everybody to consider is if uh, uh, ovarian rejuvenation is the appropriate uh, uh, words wording for for this uh, uh, technology, because in the end, as you have seen, we are rejuvenating nothing. So the the quality of the eggs is poor. So maybe ovarian activation or ovarian reactivation or something like this is more appropriate. But again, this is only uh, terminology. The, the second uh, important point, general important point that uh, uh, I think that we should address is that uh, we don't have uh, randomized clinical trials. So neither our uh, uh, trial that uh, um, that Sonia described and, uh, and, and, and we use uh, um, a, a contralateral site as control resulted in uh, a positive effects in the two sites. And the, the paper that Emre has presented uh, um, includes many patients and uh, this is remarkable, more than 300 patients, but still we don't have controls. And the problem is that uh, when you look at large series of women with uh, POI, with premature ovarian insufficiency, it turns out, and, and the, lar the largest that I know was published in, from uh, a French group uh, that collects all the cases from uh, almost uh, the, the entire France, is, uh, is based in Paris. And uh, basically, uh, they published, uh, they have series with more than 600 patients. And, uh, when, and, and they observe spontaneous pregnancies in women with uh, true uh, POI, and I'll come back to true, in about 4%. And uh, when the patients had uh, what they, uh, that in the literature is called uh, fluctuant uh, uh, POI, so these women with oligomenorrhea that sometimes have more than, um, I don't know, 50, 60, uh, units per liter FSH, but sometimes they come uh, down to 25 and uh, they have sometimes a spotting, as I described. In these women, spontaneous pregnancies come to almost 18%. I, if I recall well, it, it is 17.5%. So that, that speaks for the need to have uh, uh, controls in, in our studies because spontaneous pregnancies do uh, occur. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and I think this is important. The, the field, uh, to my understanding, is very interesting. It may be useful for not too many patients because there are not so many but uh, with uh, premature um, ovarian failure, but uh, still uh, it's interesting. And for me, uh, it became, uh, I became interested after the work of Aaron Shue and, and Kawamura and uh, Emre and, and Sonia described, but, but the thing is that there's a paper published um, 20 years ago 
from Holland in which they did biopsies in these women and they found out that as much as many as as 39% of these women have still follicles in their ovaries despite the the definition of POI so even if the the whole population is not uh, so huge uh, still there is room for uh, research and the 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 methodology that Sonia has described uh, uh, in, it might be worth the methodology that Emre has described might be also very interesting and perhaps a combination of the two uh, could be um, a very good idea. Now people may ask themselves why uh, we in Spain did the whole thing so complicated and, and try to uh, introduce uh, these uh, uh, bone marrow stem cells uh, using catheterin. That comes from uh, previous studies in the endometrium that uh, Carlos Simon and, and Xavi Santa Maria did, uh, where uh, the whole group decided to use this technology. So when I gave the first talks, people asked me, why, why you didn't inject these, uh, these stem cells directly in the ovary? And that was Dr. Pantos, who was and is a pioneer in the injection, direct injection of PRP into the ovary. And I said, Dr. Pantos, because I think this, this is impossible. And he said, no, no, I, you can do it every time. And I think that uh, Enre uh, touched it upon. I mean, women with uh, premature menopause, they have many times very small ovaries, but still uh, they are reachable. So. Uh, perhaps what uh, Enre presented uh, in this second paper is, uh, to my understanding, and, and uh, after a few years of uh, doing research and trying to, to understand how the stem cells work, maybe the route uh, to put these cells in the ovaries is uh, the appropriate uh, route is uh, the transvaginal injection of whatever combination of, of cells. Active, activated cells. So, so basically, uh, these are my, my main comments. I, I uh, again, I congratulate the both of you because I think it is, is, is a very interesting field of research. As Emre mentioned, uh, is about uh, the the basic interest in aging and especially aging of the ovary. Uh, who, that brought us into this uh, into this field, but again, I I encourage you to uh, to continue with the randomized clinical trials uh, to find out whether uh, we can really uh, make something that many of our patients will benefit from it. Thank you, Dr. Perisar. Uh, Andres, can I just say something before we? Go Absolutely, go ahead. Okay, so two things. Two very good points from Dr. Perisar. I 100% agree with the terminology. Terminology matters. We discussed with Andres what to call this journal club, but we decided to use rejuvenation, but from now on, we will not. We are, to our patients in our study, we're using activation term, just because rejuvenation may be misleading. I 100% agree, and it is important. Uh, and if anybody was upset about our rejuvenation per part of any of the participants, we just wanted to make sure people understand what we're going to talk about because it's being used a lot in the field. But I agree, it's not rejuvenation. Uh, the second part, Dr. Pelisarsen and I also see a, a comment from uh, Istanbul, I know, who's doing the comment that these patients with POI may, may have 
spontaneous uh, cycles and pregnancies. It's been clearly shown long, long time ago. I agree, and that is absolutely the reason why we should not be super optimistic about these findings, because it is possible that if you follow these women just for four months, they may be ovulating anyway. So I completely agree with you, and that is why we don't, I don't personally offer this as a, like a routine treatment to my patients, and I suggest to everyone uh, to wait for a randomized clinical trial. Thank you. Absolutely. We, we do have a couple questions from the audience. I'll, I'll read them to you and you can, you can all answer. Um, one person says there's a 10 to 15% chance of pregnancy in patients with POI. What is in, in this study the complication rate or were there any complications such as infection in patients who had undergone ovarian PRP? And would you try PRP in a patient with an endometrioma? Well, I guess I'll answer it, although, I mean, Dr. Pelissar, you know, can answer it as a physician. But uh, a, in this specific trial, in the, these patients, there were no infection complications. Uh, in the initial patients that we have done uh, in the randomized clinical trial, which are not many, less around 20, we, had, we did not have any complications either. Uh, it is very similar to a retrieval procedure. It is not very different from retrieval. Uh, so you should, I, unless there's something that I cannot think about in the little, you know, white blood cell section that could cause an inflammatory reaction or so, I, I can't think of a major complication that is different than retrieval. And the other, the question... Would you do it in a patient with an endometrioma? Oh, oh. Well, I, uh, endometrioma has always been a que question for us uh, since our residency. Again, we used to collaborate with Evie then, with Juan Garcia Velasco in a, in a study. So you can always, uh, if it's in one ovary, you can do it to the other ovary. If there's an, uh, uh, the way uh, Dr. Chakarol and his colleagues are doing these, these injections, they try to go uh, first distal to the probe and under the cortex and come forward and uh, proximal under the cortex. And if possible, you, uh, they also, when they're not sure, and the ovaries is very small, actually they don't mind injecting into the follicle if there's a follicle. Uh, so I think it can be done. Uh, I, would, I would always, whenever you're doing something that is experimental, and this is experimental, I would be, I would try to be cautious. We do have one more question. This is regarding more the ideology of the POI. Um, would these techniques be useful for patients who have overcome radio or chemotherapy after cancer? Would this be a better option than, for example, ovarian tissue cryopreservation? So this, it's, it sounds like an easy question to answer, but actually it's a complicated question because there are many of us who keep arguing or disagreeing about the overlap or lack thereof of uh, diminished ovarian reserve versus ovarian aging. They Are they the same thing? Are they the dif are they different thing? How much overlap there is? Uh, so a recent price paper at ASRM showed a lot of overlap, you know, suggested overlap. Our data does not suggest that. Uh, Juan Garcia Velasco showed that you can get, you know, um, and, and our data also consists that, you know, you could have quality eggs with very low AMH levels, et cetera. So, um, and also chemotherapy's effect on oocyte health is important to understand. And I will let Josh comment on it. But my understanding has always been is that chemotherapy either kills the egg, activates uh, a response that will activate apoptosis. If you survive, uh, those, those eggs that survive tend to be 
okay, or at least nothing that we can necessarily detect. If that is the case and that is surviving all sites, um, I think it could be considered. I am actually more uh, cautious or more pessimistic about genetic causes of ovarian failure. So I would actually let Josh and Sonia maybe comment on this because Sonia is doing mouse work and Josh has done the chemotherapy stem cell work. And yeah, so thanks, Emery. I always take the fairly extreme position that, you know, egg quality and, their, and the survival of oocytes within follicles are quite uncoupled. And we know this because there are women who ovulate regularly for many years deep into her 40s, or early 50s that never conceive, right? So oocyte quality, and I'll get back to chemotherapy in a moment. I'll get back to the direct question answer in a moment. So chemotherapy tends to correspond with increased rates of growth activation and the loss of follicles after they begin to grow. It's very difficult to find direct evidence that chemotherapies or common ones kill primordial follicles that reserve directly. So as you said, Emre, it's a very complicated question and hard to tell because some women treated with chemotherapy who had a high ovarian reserve beforehand might now having a low ovarian reserve respond beautifully to the types of techniques that you and Sonia are applying. And some may not. And, and it's very hard to tell comparing where they started to post chemo. Was it a result of chemo? Is this now a result that you have matched their quality of their eggs that they would have achieved if they had aged, right, without chemotherapy? So it, a very complicated question. I always default to egg quality is not very easily correlated to how many you have in follicles. Well, uh, I just want to make one comment on the chemotherapy thing, uh, because my work came from the fertility preservation, so we were working on that for a long time. And I completely agree with uh, Dr. Johnson that the previous condition of the women is going to be the main determinant of what happened after chemotherapy. For sure, the chemotherapy is going to damage both the growing follicles uh, as well as the ovarian niche because it destroys the, the vessels, makes the, the ovary fibrotic, but also uh, affects the, the chiasm population. But there's a paper published in 2007 and seven, yeah, from Betia where they realized that even when the women after chemotherapy uh, became POI or, you know, completely infertile, there's primordial follicles on the, uh, on the uh, ovary that can be raised. For sure, maybe some of them would have the, the quality affected. But in this paper, they, they, this was a patient which was infertile due to chemo and radiotherapy when she was a child. Then she received bone marrow transplant from a, an uh, heterologous donor. But, and then she recovers menses and she gave birth to a healthy child. And when they make the polymorphism analysis from the donor, the women, and the child, they, they realized that there was uh, uh, the genetic relationship was in between the mother and the child, not with the donor. So this uh, highlights the, um, the fact that even when the ovary doesn't work and do not ovulate or there's uh, these follicles remaining, even if they are not activated, but they can become activated. 
But for sure, the age is going to be uh, a determinant for, for the response of uh, the patient after the, the treatment, as well as the type of drug that we are using. You know, the alkylating agents are like the most damaging ones for the ovary, and uh, the dose is also a, a big deal. So we need to make this observation very individualized because each woman is different from the other. Even if they are receiving the same treatment, the, the state of the ovary before to receive it is going to be a, a main determinant of the response after, after treatment. Thank you. We, we do need to move on to the last paper for the day. It's presented by Dr. Costa Borges. The paper is Maternal Spindle Transfer Overcomes Embryo Developmental Arrest Caused by Ooplasmic Defects in Mice. It was published on eLife in 2020. Dr. Costa Borges, welcome. Please go ahead. Uh, hello, everyone, and thanks again for the invitation. It's a very, yeah, I'm very pleased to join you today. So this is a paper that we published this year and uh, refers to a project that we are currently uh, carrying on. And um, it was published. Uh, it's the results that uh, we collected uh, using the mouse model. Um, as um, Sonia explained, uh, I think um, the, the cautious way of going with experimental procedures is always to, to perform validations first in animal models and then go on if the results are worse to go on on preclinical and, and clinical validations. So this, this, um, this paper counted with a collaboration of the group of Dr. Dagan Wells, uh, who were involved in the, all the molecular analysis that we performed. And basically this project uh, uh, um, that we are carrying on is um, uh, aims to explore the effectiveness of a technique called maternal spindle transfer in particular uh, uh, to see if it's a feasible way of uh, overcoming uh, embryo development arrest or enhancing the potential of poor quality oocytes to develop into a good quality embryo. So in this study, uh, this was uh, the, the, the question that we wanted to answer to evaluate whether a maternal spindle transfer, that is a, a technical micromanipulation procedure that has been originally proposed to prevent or to reduce the risk of, transmit, of transmitting mitochondrial diseases, but we thought that it could be also useful uh, for, for this uh, purpose of over, overcoming uh, embryo development arrest caused by porocyte quality. Uh, we know that uh, IVF procedures and uh, ART techniques have evolved a lot in the last years, but there are many but the efficiency of these procedures is still not 100%. And there is some uh, for, uh, infertility or, or subfertility problems that cannot be uh, overcome with the conventional treatment. In particular, this problem with uh, the number of oocytes that we've been talking before and the other problem related to the quality of the oocytes that uh, in some in a few, um, a few patients they, they, the IVF cycles doesn't go well because uh, after inseminating these oocytes, the embryos don't develop 
properly into a good quality embryo for transfer. And usually this problem uh, persists even if the IVF cycle is repeated uh, several times. So we wanted, we thought that it, it was time to, to address this problem and trying to start uh, uh, exploring uh, ways of uh, solving this, uh, of giving these patients an alternative. So we started with this paper, uh, with these validations in the mouse model, and uh, basically the paper included four uh, big uh, parts. The first one that involves the validation of the technical procedure per se, so meaning that uh, we first uh, um, evaluated whether the, the fact of transferring the meiotic spindle from one oocyte to another uh, would have any detrimental effect afterwards. And we've seen that uh, when performing this in a, in a, a mouse strain with a good embryo development, that the fact of transfer of doing this manipulation in the oocyte was not compromising its further development. A part in this part of the, of the study was checked whether this would be possible to perform in fresh and and vitrified oocytes because in uh, eventual clinical application of the technique, it would be interesting to see which combination would be would offer uh, uh, more guarantees. And we observed that uh, in fact, um, it doesn't matter whether the, the spindle comes from a vitrified or a fresh oocyte, but whether the best results are achieved when we transfer the meiotic spindle from one site into a fresh cytoplasm. Then knowing that the technique was working well, we then uh, did the proof of concept using a, a very sensitive mouse uh, uh, strain that is known to have very poor reproductive outcomes. So in a clinical context, this would uh, represent a patient with poor oocyte quality. And we transferred these spindles from this mouse strain into nucleated oocytes from a, from a strain of mice that we, we know that has a good development and it would represent uh, a donor. Um, after uh, the, the, the results that we got were, were very exciting because uh, uh, in the non-manipulated oocytes from the sensitive straw, we observed this that we wanted to see, that was this uh, massive embryo development arrest. And it was very exciting because when we transferred these meiotic spindles from the sensitive strain into the cytoplasm from the good strain, we were able to overcome this embryo development arrest. And we got uh, uh, 10, per, 10 times more uh, blastocyst developmental rates compared to the to the complement to the corresponding controls. Uh, another interesting thing that we found in this paper was that um, uh, the heteroplasmy levels uh, resultant from man the manipulation of the oocytes. We know that uh, well, the meiotic the meiotic spindle transfer involves to transfer the, this structure well, that is the spindle from the oocytes. Uh, to a, an inoculated cytoplast. And when we're doing this procedure, uh, there's um, co-transferred with a spindle, a small amount of cytoplasm that contains mitochondria. So we, because the strains of mice 
uh, were uh, from different origins, we were able to trace home a match of the cytoplasmos co-transferred with the spindle. And in this case, the amount was very, very little. A part of that, we also checked the, the presence of uh, heteroplasmy in the, in the mice that resulted from this procedure in different organs. And we saw that these levels, low levels of heteroplasmy remained low at adult age in the different organs that were analyzed. And finally, uh, we also, more related to the safety of the procedure, we also wanted to, to explore what would be the long-term effects of this procedure in, in these mice. So we crossed them uh, over five generations and we saw something that was also very interesting that was the reproductive um, outcomes of the, of the following generations was uh, restored. So this was also something interesting because we are not expecting to have these results. So meaning that uh, the effects that we create after doing this procedure seems to, uh, uh, to, be, uh, to, to persist over time on the next generations. Uh, also, in, as, as we, we uh, had to create several generations of mice, we had the opportunity to study the organs of these mice and doing histological examinations on almost all organs of these mice that were generated. And the results showed that uh, there was no, no abnormalities found in these, in these, um, in these animals. So overall, uh, this, this, um, this study, uh, I think it was a, a, a interesting validation to demonstrate uh, both the efficiency and, and uh, the safety of the procedure, in this case, in the mouse model. Thank you, Dr. Costa-Burgess. Dr. Wells and Dr. Peyther will comment on, on your papers. Dr. Wells, would you like to start? Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, this is a study uh, that I really enjoyed being um, a collaborator on, uh, largely because I was just extremely impressed by um, Nuno's dedication to the project and the lengths that he wanted to go to, to really try and understand the questions that were involved here. Uh, there was a lot of optimization, uh, technical validation, um, and so in a way, it's a, quite a nice paradigm for how you could uh, begin a study of this nature, uh, maybe with ultimately a, a clinical application in humans um, down the road. So optimization, optimization, technical validation, he was looking at cells, at whole embryos, uh, as you've heard, looking at multiple tissues from the resulting pups, um, looking both at the histology, but also at the genetics, uh, the levels of heteroplasmy, in other words, the mixture of the two kinds of mitochondria, the one that had accompanied the spindle um, and the one that was in the actual donor cytoplast. Uh, and then doing all of this over five generations of mice. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, the sort of final conclusion that there was a permanent correction of this quite profound uh, embryonic defect um, and without uh, having the cost of some kind of ongoing heteroplasmy to worry about you know the heteroplasmy disappeared very rapidly um, I think uh, after 
really after into the second generation, it was kind of gone. Uh, and so was the actual reproductive defect in terms of embryonic, embryonic development. So, you know, really nice, uh, encouraging results from that. And, you know, as Nuno mentioned, of course, there, there is a class of um, patient that we uh, struggle with in um, IVF clinics at the moment that are kind of refractory to our, our attempts to treat them because they don't produce blastocysts. Uh, they might produce eggs. They may even have eggs that fertilize, but they just never produce blastocysts. And so, you know, that, that does raise the possibility that this could be um, very interesting for patients of, of that kind. Um, you know, I, I've, I've certainly got a, a couple of questions that I'd be interested to get uh, Nuno's latest thoughts uh, about. Um, you know, obviously, Nuno, uh, you had, for, for all the right reasons, chosen a very interesting but unusual mouse for this, one with this really big defect in embryo development. Um, and now that you've done more work on this, I mean, what's your feelings about how much you can extrapolate this? To the human situation. I was thank you, Diane, uh, for your comments and also this interesting question. Well, uh, you know that we are now uh, you have moved forward and we are now doing this pilot trial in humans as well. And uh, I think it, we were not expecting to to see uh, so so good. Um, um, correlation between what we found in the mouse and the, what we're seeing in humans. So in particular, with this mouse uh, 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 mouse uh, strain, we were seeing that uh, most of the oocytes that were not manipulated within the first days of uh, after inseminated, uh, they stopped their division and they couldn't reach the blastocyst stage. So when we were transferring the spindle into this uh, new cytoplasmic machinery, we were able to overcome this, this problem. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the humans. So it means that uh, indeed we need to, I think it's interesting to validate always the, the, the old experimental procedures choosing the good animal models because this could be very relevant uh, before translating the projects into into humans, and this should apply for, for all innovative techniques and um, some procedures that uh, uh, we're we're applying them already in, in humans, and maybe they could be they could have been better validated in 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 in, in other in other models. Yeah, I mean, I think you're really to be commended for the strategy that you've taken and really trying to do everything possible to validate this in an animal model before going to the human pilot study that you're involved in uh, now. Um, I mean, you know, I, I know you've presented some of that work at uh, the ASRM uh, and other meetings. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure if it's appropriate to, to mention much of it now, but, but you think that your results are, are encouraging from that study now in, in the human yeah, I think uh, of course this is the first pilot trial, and we don't want to cause to to cause any false expectations to patients. So we are not in a rush because I think the technique deserves to be very well uh, validated. 
and we don't want to jeopardize uh, the the potential of this technique uh, uh, creating false expectations uh, on the patient. So uh, the results that we have been collecting in, 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 in this pilot trial are, I think they are extremely good attending the type of patients that we are dealing with. We're dealing with patients that have, uh, this is uh, something that we published at the SRM, so I'm not revealing anything. Uh, uh, that I can't. Uh, so we we, had, we did a pilot trial that was registered. It was uh, approved by the the national uh, committee and the national authorization of uh, the country where we're doing this in collaboration with the Institute of Life in Greece. And the the interesting thing is that uh, we have we've been very careful on uh, selecting which patients were included in the study and we only included those that we were uh, sure that uh, the problem that they were facing was related to the quality of their oocytes. So we included only patients that had passed through several uh, previous IVF attempts without blastocyst formation and the average uh, number of previous IVF failed cycles was uh, in, for the 25 patients, 5.6. And if we sum up all the cycles that they have done, uh, it's uh, 100, uh, almost 160 cycles with no blastocyst formation. So in this case, with 25 MST cycles, we got 16 patients that have at least one nucleoid blastocyst which I think uh, dogs perceive. And we have already uh, five babies that were born from these uh, 16 patients. Yeah, I think that's incredibly striking. I mean, of course, you can, we have to be honest, this isn't a randomized controlled trial or anything like that. These patients may have some residual abilities to produce blastocysts and even pregnancies. But yes, I mean, to consider, you know, how many over a hundred uh, IVF cycles with no blastocysts, and then almost all of them producing at least one, and not just one, but one euploid one, as you were saying. Exactly. Um, there's only one other thing I was because I, I think other people probably want to ask um, things of you. There's just one other thing I wanted to ask, which was um, you know obviously in terms of using this kind of technology to avoid transmission of mitochondrial DNA disorders. Uh, which of course have always caused a, a problem for us diagnostically and, and you know, therapeutically, there are very few uh, options for those patients. Um, of course, uh, other people have thought about doing it via pronuclear transfer. And with all the studies you've done, uh, has it led you to any conclusions as to whether spindle transfer has any advantages or disadvantages in comparison with doing pronuclear transfer for these patients? Mm, that's also an interesting point. I mean, both uh, spindle transfer and pronuclear transfer belong to the same family of techniques uh, that uh, are called uh, um, mitochondrial replacement therapies. I think the main advantage of maternal spindle transfer is that we are uh, doing this intervention uh, at the oocyte level, so before these oocytes are fertilized. So any ethical concern related to manipulation of embryos it's not, uh, does not apply for this technique. The other um, part that I think is also important at the technical level is uh, that um, 
uh, it's the timings when the procedures are performed. So the advantage of uh, maternal spindle transfer is that we are doing it in all sites that are arrested at metaphase two stage. So we are not in a hurry to, to, know, to do the procedure like uh, we have to be when we're doing pronuclear transfer because uh, this will depend on the timing of appearance of the pronuclei. And we need also to coordinate the number, exact number of uh, zygotes that we need to enucleate should be similar to the, to the, the number of fertilized uh, uh, oocytes that we got on, that, on the day of the experiment. So this is a little bit difficult to, to ensure that we have enough number of both kinds to, to do the procedure. When this with the maternal spindle transfer, it doesn't represent any problem. Apart of that, um, it seems that at the mitochondrial carryover uh, um, level, um, um, maternal spindle transfer is perform if performed correctly, is associated with very, very low heteroplasmy levels because the distribution of the mitochondria around the cytoplasm of the oocyte uh, seems to be uneven. And around the meiotic spindle, there are not so many as uh, they can be present around the perinuclear space of the zygote. So uh, because we have to take the pronuclei uh, with a vicinity of cytoplasm around, if there is accumulation of mitochondria there, there will be always more carryover than in the meiotic spindle that at this stage the oocyte doesn't have a nuclear membrane because the nuclei are condensed in chromosomes and therefore the mitochondria seem to be more uh, dispersed around the cytoplasm. Such great answers. Doc, Dr. Pelissard, would, would you comment at all? Uh, we are running short of time. Just two comments. First of all, uh, Nuno knows very well how much I, I admire his work and Gloria's um, lab. Um, I just want to make two remarks uh, because, again, we don't have much time. The first one, Nuno, is which is the reproducibility of the technique? Because I think that you have special skills to do that and uh, it shouldn't be that easy. Uh, to do um, the uh, maternal spindle transfer. And the second point I would like to address is that uh, you know that uh, heteroplasmy is uh, particularly and specific, specifically forbidden. Um, any technique that uh, could have uh, heteroplasmy in many, many, many um, uh, regulations around the world. Uh, how do you uh, see that uh, your work in, in mice and then in humans will uh, perhaps in the future in the future change that these regulations that we have today? Well, first, uh, we both, I think, on, in, in Gloria's name and on myself, uh, we are super happy to have you as a supporter. <laughs> Because uh, at this time, you know that it's very, uh, when we're doing uh, something, uh, experimental procedures, it's important for people to understand the, what, what's the work behind. And I think you, 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 you will be following all the, the studies that we've been performing and you're fully aware that this is not, that, uh, that we are serious and we want to validate as much as we can all these procedures. So uh, on behalf of both, we would like to 
thank you. Then in terms of the technique, uh, I think, well, I mean, this is, of course, is a technique that involves micro manipulation and you need some skills to do it. Uh, the advantage that I had was because I had done my, my PhD in animal cloning. So the part of uh, removing the meiotic spindles was uh, not so difficult for me to, to optimize. Uh, but I think um, with the proper training and dedication and uh, if you, you are good on, on doing my, and you like doing micro, micro manipulation and with time and uh, some skills, then you will be able to, to be proficient also. Also with in the last, in the last, in the next years, it's expected to for that we will be counting with new equipment for for the for performing uh, procedures, so this would also facilitate uh, the, the the application of the technique and to make it more, more a routine procedure. Uh, whether this can become a routine procedure or not, it's a a good question. I think the the it's true that in many countries this procedure is not allowed because of the teroplasmy problem but knowing what we're knowing now and because these these laws have been implemented many years ago nowadays we have much more information about the real effects or concerns of teroplasmy and we for example teroplasmy exists in in most of the population, they know it better than, than, than I do. But uh, we shouldn't be so worried about heteroplasmy, uh, knowing that heteroplasmy uh, uh, is something that occurs in nature and most of people is heteroplasmy. Other thing is if within the mitochondria that we have in our cells, there are some that have mutations and these mutations are uh, responsible for very devastating diseases. But if the heteroplasmy, it means that we have different uh, uh, origins of mitochondria, but both types are healthy, this shouldn't be uh, uh, a matter of, of great concern. But I think it's time to start moving on and for regulatory agencies to start uh, looking at this as a a new generation of procedures that should be uh, taken into account if we want to offer patients uh, the possibility of overcoming their problems and having uh, uh, children uh, genetically related with them. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's unfortunately all we have time for. It's been great to have all of you. I hope everybody in the audience enjoyed these this discussions as much as I did. I would like to give a huge thank you, of course, to our audience for joining us and especially to all of you, to all of our guests today. Thank you so much. It's been great. We'll see you next time. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Bye.